This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore, this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Feel, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. Tonight, we have for you a special guest, Dr. Kenneth Miller. Ken is a physical therapist and educator of more than 20 years of experience working with older adults in the home and inpatient rehab settings, as well as more than seven years in adjunct faculty roles for University of St. Augustine, New York Institute of Technology, University of Michigan Flint, and Toro College. He's a clinical educator at Catholic Home Care in Farmingdale, New York, has developed a course on clinical pharmacology for great seminars, and has several online courses for MedBridge. Dr. Miller chairs the APTA's Home Health Section Practice Committee and is a member of the editorial boards of Topics in Geriatric Rehabilitation, Jerry Notes, and is a manuscript reviewer for the Journal of Geriatric Physical Therapy. Well, Ken, I'm excited to have you on here because you're kind of from my uh, hometown, my neck of the woods there. I'm from Islip, New York, originally, so it's great to have you here. So I, I'm from Islip myself, so we are definitely hometown buds. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, and with, with the resume that you got there related to this field, you know, Ken, with you being a geriatric certified specialist, for those of our audience who really don't know a little bit about that, do you think you can tell us a little bit about the process of becoming a geriatric certified specialist? So I've been practicing over 20 years and getting my GCS, the, uh, special, the specialist certification is something that I actually pursued, I would have to say I started to consider it about seven to 10 years ago. And part of why I wanted to pursue that was I felt that I had the knowledge to um, to, ha- to be an expert in, in geriatric uh, field. And so I wanted to prove, you know, to be- have that proof behind my, um, you know, with my credentials that I was able to do that. So really, the, the first thing that someone needs to do to become a GCS is there's a couple of approaches to be to become board certified. Uh, the fast track way is after they graduate and, and get their entry level license and uh, degree and then license is to f- go into a residency program or a fellowship program. And then usually at the end of that process, whether that's six months of, or a year, they have enough of the didactic material in order to pass the exam. And then they have to submit a portfolio to uh, ABPTS in order to be accepted to sit for the exam. So the process is submitting a portfolio that includes their experience, their clinical experience. So they need to have a minimum number of hours. And, and offhand, I'm not re- I do not recall how many hours of practice they need, but they actually have to have clinical hours of patient practice uh, verified to sit for the exam. And then they have to have the didactic knowledge. As far as myself, I had, um, when I finally uh, I took the exam, I, I certainly had much more than the minimum required hours because I had many years of practice working full-time in the field and 
at that point, I said, well, I want to make sure that I have the didactic knowledge to pass an exam. And so what I ended up doing was taking some continuing edu education courses, creating my own courses. And, uh, you know, when I felt prepared, I, I applied, I submitted my portfolio, it was accepted. And then I, you know, once accepted, I uh, made an appointment and sat for the exam. Ken, uh, just out of curiosity, what are some characteristics or what kind of person would you say should consider pursuing a GCS? I think that getting that credential is important for anyone that wants to go into academia, someone that wants to specialize in an area of physical therapy and show that expertise. You know, most most clinicians are, um, you know, that have practiced, you know, if, you know, the blessing of being in, in the physical therapy profession is we can move into different uh, practice settings and we can work with, with patients and clients from cradle to grave. And so you can, you know, work in pediatrics, you can work in geriatrics, you can work with a, um, a very high um, uh, high school athlete or college or professional athlete level. So you really can work in a variety of areas. But if you find a niche that you enjoy, uh, like I've enjoyed working in, in geriatrics, that um, I wanted to just make sure that I had the, the skill set. And so for me, it's, I, liked, I took the examination and I, I wanted to prove to myself that I, that I had that content knowledge. Uh, but anybody that's, that's a new graduate that says, you know what, I'm not sure what I want to do next. Uh, I think having a five or a 10 year plan and having the GCS or their PCS or OCS or NCS, you know, in that timeline on their plan, I think it's a good idea to have because then it, it assures that you are continually updating your skill set and uh, making sure that you maintain clinical practice. So I think that primarily though, where I, it's beneficial to me as far as what do I get out of the money I pay for that for that um, credential and, and for that exam really was a matter of it opened doors for my uh, being able to provide education in the continuing education setting and, and more specifically in the academia world. You know, a question that I got for you is I know that some therapists do not elect to pursue the board certified specialty. And granted, I realizing that, you know, for some circumstances, it makes more sense and is required compared to others. But I know that others instead choose to tune their own continuing education or growth, whether that through a combination of, you know, CEU courses, doing their own article research, podcast books, and the list goes on and on compared to going the board specialty route. You know, and with that being said, what are your thoughts on this route compared to the board specialty route? Well, I, I think that the board specialty is really a, a matter of preparing for the uh, examination and, and getting the portfolio put together to be approved to sit for the exam. So uh, the way I see continuing education is really that would be the stepping stone to be able to take the exam. Or the continuing education is the stepping stone for moving up in whatever clinical ladder a person uh, may have in their, uh, where they're employed. It is a requirement for most states, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's all states, uh, to have continuing education. Um, as a part of maintaining a professional licensure. So it's, uh, I know in New York, we're required to get 36 contact hours every three years. And I know that there are different levels for different states. But for myself, I have, you know, I don't have a choice in taking continuing education or not. It's, it's mandated by the state. Uh, but I, I think that a clinician that is practicing, you know, should look to want to take continuing education regardless of it being mandated so that they keep that practice as current and as, as um, cutting edge as possible. 
Yeah, so it's really the preparation for the exam that that you get the most out of, whether or not you end up passing getting certified. It seems like, Ken, that preparation really is what helps you in the future become a better clinician, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that, you know, regardless at the end, whether you take the exam or not, you know, if you're diligent with continuing education and taking quality continuing education courses, that um, in the end, you become a much more um, seasoned clinician that is able to practice and, and be more effective with the patients. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit here and just kind of change directions, but it seems like skilled nursing facilities and home health settings uh, are really an ideal setting for interdisciplinary communication and team treatment type situations. Uh, Is that what you're kind of seeing out there? You know, I wish I could say that I that communication is, is effective uh, in the different disciplines and in dif- within the different organizations. Uh, I think that communication is probably the biggest challenge, uh, even inside our discipline, In our de- if we were working in a, a SNF facility and we were departmentalized in the rehab department and then further compartmentalized into the therapy uh, department, physical therapy department, and then the separate OT and separate speech department, I think communication is, is really um, – challenging inside our department and then trying to move it beyond our profession into the interdisciplinary model makes it a challenge. I do think that it's easier to get better dialogue and better communication when you're seeing the other clinicians, such as being in an inpatient facility. I think in a SNF facility or an inpatient rehab facility where the staffing is more specific with patients, um, unlike an acute care setting where there's so many more staff members that are rotating through, it's, it's harder to get continuity. But I, I do think an inpatient rehab, whether it's acute or subacute rehab, the opportunity is there to have better dialogue because part of the mandate for these programs is to have interdisciplinary conferencing. It's a matter of how do they conference? You know, is it a top-down direction of um, from the physiatrist or from a, a manager that dictates the meeting, or is it really truly interdisciplinary where each team member has an equal say, an equal voice from their discipline as to what's the best uh, approach or um, intervention plan for their patient? As far as home health goes, I think home health is a little more of a challenge because you're working in patients' homes alone. And so I think organizations have newer opportunities to improve interdisciplinary communication with the invention of the, um, you know, the conference call lines and you have free conference calls and other, you know, have go to meetings and, and different mechanisms using the internet or using the smartphones so you could communicate uh, more between the team members uh, that aren't able to get into the office, uh, such as as the nature of home care being spread out. But there are opportunities for uh, communication, whether we uh, embrace the technology uh, or not. I think it's uh, important that all clinicians realize that an interdisciplinary uh, approach and communication is more effective with patient care and outcomes. Yeah, no, totally for sure. I I totally agree with you on that one, Ken, because, you know, we're all we're all a team. And I think being a team on the same page is really optimal for the patient's benefit. Um, with that being said, I know you kind of talked on some of the solutions, but what are some other solutions that you could think of that perhaps we could do as PTs to kind of improve the interdisciplinary communication kind of within our realm with PTs, PTAs, but also with other professions such as um, you know, MDs, nurses, and et cetera that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, I think the biggest thing, and this has been discussed and, and part of uh, the, the broader dialogue in, in PT education and in other disciplines education, is becoming more patient-centered 
and trying to have a, a more patient-centered approach and getting patient-centered goals and uh, looking at the patient as the center of their own care plan. And so if I'm going in to work with a patient that has a heart failure diagnosis, my approach to that patient from a physical therapist will blend in with the approach of the nurse and the occupational therapist and other team members. And so having the patient at the center is what's important to the patient that all of us as our, as our disciplines can, can approach the patient to help them achieve their goals. So maybe the patient's goal is to stay out of the hospital. And maybe the fact that they have heart failure, they've been repeatedly admitted because they've had fluid retention and they've had issues. If I'm a therapist, I can work with the nurse. So the nurse may say, you need to weigh yourself every day. And as a therapist, my role is let me see that you can get up and down off and stand safe, you know, up and down on that scale and stand safely on that scale to have an accurate weight. So I think if we put the patient at the center of the hub of the wheel and we're all at the the, uh, the spokes or, uh, you know, in the, the wheel itself, being able to point centered towards the patient, I think we would have better communication because that would, would pull us together would be the patient. Yeah, no, for sure. And Ken, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts about this, because this is something that at least I've seen that has been a positive approach in the right direction. It's something that's been around for a while, but interdisciplinary rounding takes place in our hospital unit on the inpatient rehab setting. And I've seen that to be pretty helpful where all the specialties get together, the doctor, the nurse, PT, OT, speech, all go together and they kind of go through patient rooms, they discuss the case. You know, what, and what are your thoughts on that method and where we can do to further improvement to better benefit the patient and overall the interdisciplinary interaction? I think that's a really good question. You know, when you when you look at your own discipline, you're well. Most clinicians are well versed in what they do, and they understand their role. But when it comes to understanding what other disciplines' roles are, I'm, I'm a physical therapist, so I may not know what a nurse does. I may have a general sense of a nurse's role, or a general sense of what an occupational therapist does. But when you have interdisciplinary rounding and, you ha- and you're discussing the patient's case, all of the disciplines have an input into what the care plan is going to be. And so the nurse will say what they're there to do. The different therapy disciplines can say what they're there to, you know, what they're looking to do. And then the physicians can say, well, what are they looking to accomplish for that patient? And I think it all comes back to if we understand each other's roles, we'll know when to refer to the other disciplines and we'll know when we are being effective or not when we look at the total of the patient's progress, whether we need to change, whether we are effective and, and or not effective, or maybe it's not us specifically, but it's the patient condition and if maybe they'll benefit from more occupational therapy then we should increase the minutes for that discipline and maybe back down the minutes for my discipline or maybe they don't have a skilled need for myself in the first place and maybe they really need speech therapy but I think if we having the rounding and being aware of, of everyone's individual roles uh, and exposure to the other disciplines helps us to really learn the other team members roles yeah Ken speaking of um, just being in tune with other disciplines. Uh, are you taking this interdisciplinary approach um, into your classroom? Are you teaching students that they need to be open to this and to be ready for it? That's a, uh, a question that uh, you know happily answer. We have in, in our home care organization, we have an interdisciplinary team model. So when we onboard any new staff, our, inter- our orientation includes all disciplines. 
And then what we do is we have all of our disciplines starting together. And in that starting together, we talk about communication. We talk about medications. We talk about infection control. We go over all of the basics that all disciplines need to have. But we do that in, in a group format with all disciplines. And then after a couple of days of, of, the, group com, of the group work, then we provide education that is um, scope of practice, discipline specific. So the nurses would then go with uh, nurse educators and do what they need to do with the nurse educators related to their scope. The therapists will do what they need to do with myself or other uh, therapists and go over what they need to do for their scope. So we do train interdisciplinary at, at our organization. And the fruits of our labors have, have been that we have therapists now calling social workers when there are issues with equipment and where in the past the therapist wouldn't even have known that the ther that the social worker may have had resources to help the therapist find the equipment that a patient may not have been able to afford or may not have been covered for and so we have social workers contacting therapists when the patient has questions about outpatient therapy or transportation issues so the, the dialogue is much more open and, and we're not siloed where I'm a discipline specific um, approach where the research shows that that's not as effective. Right. So speaking of silos, that's a perfect transition here. But what do you see as some of the barriers to a smooth and seamless interdisciplinary approach to healthcare, particularly from one profession to another? I think probably the biggest barrier is, is clinicians become protective of their territory. Uh, I think that clinicians, um, different disciplines have maybe because of lack of exposure uh, historically in their discipline, that they're not aware of what the value of the other disciplines. Uh, so I, I think the way you can reduce the barrier, and this actually is happening in, in a lot of medical schools now and, and um, uh, allied health schools and therapy schools, is to have some classroom time with the other disciplines. I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to, to provide a keynote speech uh, on this specific topic of interprofessional education uh, at Toro College out in on Long Island, New York. And, you know, I, while I was at that, um, you know, giving that keynote, it was a symposium for the whole, the whole day was a symposium on interprofessional uh, education and communication. And so we were very intentional, uh, Toro was very intentional about looking at having exposure in the undergraduate years in the professional education where the, the different disciplines were exposed to what the other disciplines uh, were all about what and so that they knew what the other disciplines roles were and so that they knew who to call when because they knew what the other roles intentions and what their um, you know what their training was Ken kind of with that I'm sure this is something that you've experienced something it's something that I experience and I know it's something that other clinicians have experienced as well I know that all healthcare providers overall mean well but something that I know that we're facing is you know, finding the best way to educate other healthcare providers on content that kind of potentially goes against what they've been doing or they've been taught. So like a, a common example to put that out there is kind of wanting to educate other professions on avoiding words that worsen the patient's perception of pain. You know, we see this pretty commonly. Now, of course, realizing <laughs> that this is, this is very individually specific based on the provider, but what are some strategies that you'd recommend with teaching other providers that can effectively lead to getting your point across without them being upset? I think that it's it's always challenging to try to to change somebody's practice or uh, their behavior. 
I, I think that the most effective way to try to change someone's behaviors, I like to use the motivational interviewing. And really, I try to use that not only with my patients, but I try to use it with my colleagues. And, and the way I approach it with my colleagues is if there's something that's being done that is is um, is not best practice or something that's being done that is, is may not be the best for that patient, such as talking about uh, pain in a way that's catastrophizing their pain, I think a lot of clinicians are unaware that they need to change their practice and telling them that, oh, you did that wrong is, is only going to make them dig in a little bit further into their own practice. So being able to be open about, well, you know, was that effective? Like having them try to become more introspective about how they did it and say, you know, did you accomplish what you set out to accomplish uh, when you said what you said. And sometimes that can be done on an individual basis. Uh, sometimes when things happen, we we start off by doing it as a more global statement for maybe a group of people, hoping that the person it's in t that's intended to hear it uh, hears it. That, all, that doesn't always happen. But I think being open, trying to be empathetic, uh, understanding that it's, it's not intentional to do something in, a, in, a, uh, in a, an older way or a different way that may not be as effective. Understanding that the, that's not intention, there's not an intent to do something wrong uh, is a big part of it. So motivational interviewing is something that I've incorporated into my practice. And no, I, don't, I try not to ask why questions. You know, I'd like to try to explore the with the conversation as to, well, you know, I know that you, I, I saw how you approached the patient. You know, how is that working for you? And try to leave it a little bit more open ended, or you know, did that accomplish what you were trying to accomplish? And you know, if it did, you know, then maybe move the dialogue from, well, well, how do we, how do you measure that that it achieved what you what you believe it achieved, and then and then move on from there. Right, kind of making it a more open and engaging conversation about discussion rather than a finger-pointing thing and not trying to make someone feel inferior and therefore more resistant and kind of getting them to subtly pick up what they're doing and realize it themselves. Good point. Yeah, Ken, I know you talked about it a little bit, um, and you guys kind of do it in your onboarding process, it sounded like, but do you foresee any sort of continuing education classes that may incorporate interdisciplinary care? Or, I mean, is that even a model you think could succeed? I think for a lot of continuing education classes, you know, the some of the, the training and the courses that I have uh, put together over the past few years, some of the courses are interdisciplinary for the therapy disciplines. Um, you know, there's more, I believe, more commonality between physical therapy and occupational therapy. Um, you know, when I've worked with speech therapists, Certain areas that we try to work together and build together uh, as far as uh, continuing education, um, certain topics just don't fit together. Uh, when you're talking about communication, that's a topic that fits together. If you're talking about how to approach the patient, how to, uh, you know, therapeutic alliance with the patient, if you're talking about cognition, you know, talking about certain aspects of the patient's care, definitely there's overlap and you can provide education, continuing education for the interdisciplinary team. But I do believe that it's, it's more of a challenge when you, you are discussing discipline-specific content. Um, and I, I've had some courses that I've put together where um, sometimes the, the same exact content is provided and for one group it's effective and then for other, you know, for all disciplines and then for other other um, times I've provided the same content, the, uh, the conversation doesn't move to a place where all the clinicians feel that it was all worthwhile. You know, pieces of it might have been but not the overall whole of the, of the session. 
Interesting. So, Ken, we asked this question of all of our guests as kind of a wrap-up question, but hypothetically, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, uh, physical therapy or otherwise, what aspect would that be and how would you change it? I think that as, as far as the physical therapy uh, discipline, I think that we are moving towards incorporating the, um, the other disciplines more so in the fact that we are now looking towards – we are a doctor in profession. So I think that pro- clinicians being trained now are, are being trained much more so in learning what other disciplines' roles are and learning when to refer patients out. The, the PT world fought very hard for direct access and fought very hard for autonomous practice. And I think that autonomous practice does not mean practicing in a vacuum. And so I think that programs that are looking to, ha- to teach clinicians how to refer out to other disciplines is, is one way that you will be able to provide uh, better um, care and better education. I think that overall healthcare education is has changed quite a significant amount. I do believe many programs have interdisciplinary training courses, even if it's just a few hours of the content, but they are learning of the role of other of other disciplines. So I think the way we could be most effective in promoting that is really continuing to move towards the patient is the center of the care plan and that we need to look at how all of the team members in the different disciplines have a value for that patient's care plan. And um, just being open to the other disciplines is, um, I think, is really a key. And teaching teaching new therapists or new um, students into, you know, DPT students, that they need to be open to the other professions and that they don't va- practice in a vacuum um, will expand that, that concept out there. Yeah, great point, Ken. I mean, it, it's, it should come as no surprise that by making the patient the center of everything, that kind of, you know, that, that literally goes across all disciplines and we can all kind of come back to that, that same common goal and common theme of getting the best results for the patient. So Ken, I've got to ask, uh, just for my own sanity and my own just self-interest Mets or Yankees. Well, I know you're, I, I can see from Twitter that you are a Mets fan. Avid, avid Mets fan, diehard. So as far as my own rooting interest, I grew up, I was born in Flushing, Queens, so that will give you some of some uh, somewhat of an indication. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So I, I know you're happy with what I just said. As far Absolutely. as really being a uh, um, a diehard uh, interest in 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 baseball in general, personally, when they had the strike in '94, you know, it turned me off. So I do still I root. Understand. I still root for them, but not as not as hard as I had once uh, before that yeah. strike. That that tainted my. Uh, my feeling that sports was all about business, um, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, thank you so much, Ken, for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was a great conversation with you. Um, can you tell our audience where they can find you on the internet and social media and all that? So I do have a Twitter handle. It's uh, the at sign, uh, Ken MPT, K-E-N-M like Mary, P like Paul, T like Tom. So Ken MPT, uh, at Ken MPT is how you'll find me on Twitter. Happy to be on the call. Thank you so much. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, 
the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.